Welcome back to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and joined with me is my beautiful wife, Erica, the weaker vessel. Hello, everyone. Also joined with us is Sandra and Scotty Rowlett. Hey. Hello. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing pretty well. How are you still? Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. If... You guys would like to know more about Awakening Reformation. And by you guys, he doesn't mean Scott Ward and Sandra. All of the listeners, you can go to rebelalliancemedia.com. You can check out the other podcasts in our media conglomerate. We have Fathers of the Faith for Covenant Kids, which is a church history podcast for kids and families that we record with our kids. And that comes out on Mondays. We also have the Rebel Podcast, hosted by P-Nate and Poots. They are up in Canada, and their podcast comes out on Wednesdays. We encourage you to go follow our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yep. We hope that you are also taking advantage of our Advent posts every weekday, and that you are getting excited for Christmas, because I know that we are getting super excited for Christmas. So excited. Thrilled. All right. I feel the love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go check out the Advent. All right. Tonight we continue to make our way through Louis Burkhoff's Manual of Christian Doctrine. We hope that you guys are enjoying it. We started at the beginning of this book and been doing episodes, making our way, just doing a summary study of Burkhoff's book with our friends Scotty and Sandra And we've had a lot of good feedback, too, which has been really encouraging. Before we really get into our topic tonight, we had a really good question from a faithful listener, Wes Mooborn. Shout out to you, Wes. He uh, wrote us, and he asked this question after listening to the first couple episodes. And he asked us if we could explain why systematic theologies and confessions of the church tend to start with the topic of revelation or scripture. And he gave an example of the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession, starting with that section. Really, really good question, Wes. So thank you for writing us. And my first thought is just that it's foundational in that everything else that you talk about, whether it be about God, whether it be about Jesus or the Spirit, you are going to have to explain where you got that from. And because we develop and formulate our beliefs from Scripture, we have to start with Scripture and we have to start with what we believe about Scripture, how we believe they got here, what they mean to our lives. And so obviously starting with the authority of Scripture and laying down that foundation of this is what we believe is authoritative for doctrine and practice, and then everything else comes after that. So that's the foundation that you then build everything else on. It's from scripture that we develop our beliefs about God. And from scripture, we develop what we believe about the Holy Spirit, Jesus, salvation, redemption, the end of the world, everything comes from scripture. So I believe that's why 
systematic theology books and confessions will always start with um will start with scripture and start with the idea of revelation, revelation. Mm-hmm. uh yes i mean i would say that we base everything in our lives off of where we're putting an authority from you know what daycare you put your kids into the job you seek i mean even yeah. in the workplace and and all those things there's an authority when we ask somebody their opinion or on something or um how they made a decision that we judge them on and so if we're going to do that in everything else in our life why would we not do it with our beliefs and i think that it's um especially important not just from you know, a Christian talking to a Christian, but also like a Christian talking to a non-Christian to tell that person if we're, you know, talking about, I mean, obviously we're not going to be, you know, have a huge theological debate with just a non-Christian in the form of like someone who doesn't know anything. But if we're just talking to them even about just the gospels to show them that we put those authorities and we believe these truths because we're putting that authority in the Bible, and this is what my this is what yeah. you know the Word of God says. Yeah, you're, this is you're where my not, authority lies. Yeah, you're not just making stuff up, and it's not the doctrine of Sandra. It's actually exactly. biblical. Exactly. Yeah, and obviously with things like you're saying, with things of eternal importance, how how much more should we be? Should we, yeah, yeah. Should we not state where that authority is taking place? Yeah. So, and that's where we have to start with anything is where we're putting the authority. I hope that answers your question, Wes, and I hope that was helpful to everyone (laughs) else too. It's a really good question. Write us and let us know if you have any questions that you'd like answered. We welcome them all. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the attributes of God. Last week, we saw that God reveals himself in his names. And now more particularly, we see God revealing himself in his attributes. And Burkhoff says that these attributes are visibly exercised by him in the works of creation, providence, and redemption. He then goes into the two most commonly used categories for the attributes of God. They are the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. Scotty, what does that mean? So the incommunicable attributes uh, are those divine perfections which have no analogies uh, in the creature. Uh, They emphasize the absolute distinctness of God, uh, his transcendent greatness. The way I was just explaining it to the kids was that these are the attributes. When he says kids, he means Erica and Sandra. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) I just told them that these are the attributes of God that he can't share with us. Yeah, these don't transfer. Yep, exactly. And so the first one that Burkhoff talks about is the independence or the self-existence of God. Did you guys have any comments on that section? Well, God can choose to be without any outside forces aiding him. Right. We cannot. Yeah, we are highly dependent beings. Yeah. And even if, you know, we think about the things that happen in our body every day that without without our control, the beat of our heart. and Involuntary muscle. Yeah. But even if your heart stops, so people could say like, well, 
it's just going. That's just the way it is. But if my heart stops, like I don't, I don't know how to just like make it start going again. I can't just get you stroke that. out and die. That's what happens. Right? Yeah, yeah. It just it's over. You know, we're all dependent on God to keep us living, and God is reliant on no one to continue existing. He is not reliant on anything. He is self reliant. He's independent in all his virtues and actions. Perfect. Yep. I did like how Burkhoff pointed out that he um, causes all of his creatures to depend on him. So he causes us to depend on him so so that we lean in. Right. And we seek him. Yeah. Could you read Acts 17.25? Uh, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Yeah. Exactly. Can you read verse 28 also? For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So right there in just a few verses, Paul shows the independence of God and then humanity's dependence on him. That's what Burkhoff is pointing out. One of the incommunicable attributes of God is his ability to be independent. One of you guys want to talk about the immutability of God? So this goes back to the unchanging Yahweh, Psalm 102:27. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. James 1:17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And Malachi 3, 6, uh, for I am the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Uh, it's just repeated throughout Scripture, his, not only his independence, but also his unchangeableness, uh, his ability in perfection in his being, uh, his promises, his covenants, that they will hold true. Because he will hold true. He does not rescind on his promises. He does not... Right. Uh, he's faithful. Yeah, he's faithful. One of the most important doctrines for covenant theology... Yeah. Because covenant theology builds one covenant on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, and then Jesus fulfills all of them. And if you take a more dispensational view of scripture you're missing that attribute of God. You're misunderstanding it. It's true. You're thinking that he can change or he must change. And we believe in like a progressive revelation. Like surely we don't understand everything about God that over the course of time and throughout Mm -hmm. history, God has revealed more and more of himself to us, but he didn't change throughout history. He didn't reveal more because he changed. Yeah. And Burkhoff even says, but the unchangeableness of God as taught in scripture, clearly does not imply that there is no movement in God. Right. Yeah, and that's a controversial topic, Sandra, because people look at the language in the Bible surrounding the, the flood and in the book of Jonah, and there's a conversation between God and Moses up on the mountain where God seems to have had a plan and then kind of went back on it and changed his mind or he changed you know, changed his will or his purpose at that time. I mean, this question is asked all the time. What was really going on here? And Burkhoff brings all that up and he says, 
right after uh, what you just read, Sandra. He is unchangeable in his inner being, his attributes, his purposes, his motives of action, and his promises. And when the Bible speaks of him as repenting and changing his intention, this is evidently only a human way of speaking. In reality, the change is not in God, but in man, and in man's relations to God. And I think, you know, I have to remind myself of this understanding of Scripture often because it can be hard when you talk about the immutability of God and He's unchanging, it's infinite and eternal, and then you read Jonah and it just says, hey, I'm going to pour out my wrath. And then the people repent and he goes, oh, just kidding. And you're like, well, what the heck's God doing? Yeah, was he really going to do that? Yeah, or not. Or is it true because they were not repentant? Well, of course God's wrath is coming on people who are unrepentant. And now they're not. So who changed? The people did. God mm-hmm. didn't. God still relates to people accordingly, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, the same with uh, the wages of sin. Just because... Jesus died on the cross and paid that cost. The wages of sin is still death. That has not been negated. What's been negated is who's getting the payment. Us as Christians is who's paying for that cost. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So yeah, that, that's really good. I'm glad he. I'm glad he covered that there. It was really good. The infinity of God in general is that perfection of His nature by which everything that belongs to His being is without measure or quantity, and it can be considered from various points of view. First one being his absolute perfection. So any knowledge he possesses or wisdom, goodness or love, righteousness, holiness, he possesses all these things in perfection. So where we might possess these things, they're going to be imperfect and finite. Now Burkhoff talks about the simplicity of God. Does anyone want to tackle that little paragraph? So the simplicity of God is basically stating that he is not composite. He does he's not composed of multiple different parts. Yeah, his attributes are not parts of him. No. You can't divide him up into different portions and say that he's made up of many portions. He's not the whole of his sum. Burkhoff says that which is composed of different parts never can be self-existent. Just because it is composed of previously existing parts, neither can it be unchangeable because every part that is added affects a change. Well, because if you were to compose something, let's just put this in a, uh, like a artistic perspective. If you are going to compose something, a song, Scotty, you probably know a little bit about this, when you compose a track. Sometimes you can overlap tracks, and I know nothing about this really, but mm-hmm, and then like you compose one track, and it's one song, but there perhaps are multiple tracks in that one song, and that's not how yeah. God works. He is not made up of different parts because, in order to to work in that way or to be made up in that way, you have to add something to an existing track or an existing project, and then that would change the original track and God doesn't change so God's not yeah. made up like that yeah because because God is eternal and infinite and perfect in all of his attributes it has always been a you know a one one song and like in your analogy that's multi-tracked it's never existed but, outside of its perfected right, none of the attributes come and go 
God's essence and attributes are not distinct. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's meant by the simplicity of God. So the next section of this chapter is the communicable attributes of God. And these are the attributes of God that we share or we bear some analogy, as Burkhoff says. And this is linked to us being made in the image of God. The first attribute that he lists is the knowledge of God. Do you have anything? Uh, so the knowledge of God may be defined as that perfection by which he in an entirely unique manner, knows himself in all things possible and actual. So it's the knowledge. The omniscience. Yes, the omniscience. Right, because uh, his, his knowledge is going to be perfect and infinite. Yes. Where ours is not. Yep. Psalm 139, 1 through 16. Uh, oh, one. Lord, you have searched me and know me. Yeah. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. I'll just go ahead and stop there. The, the gist of it is the knowledge, the overall knowledge, the mm-hmm. all-consuming omniscience uh, of the Lord knowing every bit of you. You know, your your book has been written. That perfectly sums it up. Burkhoff moves on to the next attribute, which is the wisdom of God, which may be called a particular aspect of his knowledge. It's the intelligence of God as manifested in the adaption of means to the ends. So we know God knows all things, but in his wisdom, we see that knowledge played out perfectly, really. And he points out God's wisdom being perfectly seen in creation, in providence, in his, you know, ordering of all things and how he orchestrates history, and then also in the work of redemption. So making all things new, how God brings that about really, truly displays the perfect wisdom of God and how he has brought that about. The next one, there's a lot here, guys. You can truck with us. Hopefully you got your own manual of Christian doctrine trucking along with us because there is a bunch of these. And it is really good to just think about all of these. Number three is the goodness of God and can be defined as that perfection of God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. And I know all of us could give a hearty amen to that and knowing that we are dealt with way kinder than he okay. ought. Okay, then he goes in to talk about the love of God is his delight um, in the contemplation of his own infinite perfections and of the creatures who reflect his moral image. And that basically just, you know, God's love is perfect. And he dives in deeper into just that under the love of God, there's the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the long-suffering of God. Yeah. Uh, the next one is the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the first uh, of all that divine perfection by which uh, he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures yeah. and exalted above them uh, in infinite majesty. Basically, his his majesty being put above all, all other things. Yeah. So, six, Berghoff talks about the righteousness of God. This attribute of God is closely related to the holiness of God. 
And it is the perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness. And this is seen in his rectoral justice. This is the rectitude which God manifests as the ruler of both good and evil. We see God also display his remunerative justice, which is his distribution of rewards to both men and angels. And God also shows his righteousness and his retributive justice, which is inflicting penalties and is an expression of his divine wrath. In a sinless world, there would be no place for its exercise, but in a world full of sin, it necessarily holds a very prominent place. In number seven, he talks about the veracity of God, that perfection and virtue of which he is true in his inner being, in his revelation and in his relation to his people, that he knows things as they really are and also enables man to know the reality of things and that he faithfully fulfills all his covenant promises. So the last, is this the last one? Yeah, the last one is a big one. So the last one is a big one. It's a big one. It's a big one. (laughs) And this is the sovereignty of God. And so under this general heading, we consider God's sovereign will or his sovereignty in planning and directing the affairs of the world and of his rational creatures, his sovereign power, his omnipotence in executing his will. So the sovereign will of God is represented in scripture as the final cause of all things. Nothing happens outside of his control. Like Sproul uh, has said, there's not one rogue molecule in the universe. It is all under the control of God's sovereign will and is going in the direction God wants it to. So, Scott, Wait, are you saying so in relation to evolution, there wasn't just a random uh, molecule that decided to to start life? Is, that, is this what you're saying? Yep, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> so, the secret and the revealed will of God. Several distinctions are applied to the will of God, of which the most common is that between the secret and the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God would be scripture and the secret will of God are just those things hidden from us that we are not privy to. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us this, that the secret things belong to God, but the things that God wants us to know, he has given to us in scripture. So even though there is an analogy of God's sovereignty in us, right, we can make decisions in our lives and order things, yes, under the sovereign control of God, but he has given us the ability to go to Target versus Walmart or go to Walmart versus Target. We are able to exert our will. We humans are not free in our ability to will things. And this is very important for us to remember. None of us can just will ourselves the ability to fly and take off in flight. But God's will is free, though, on the other hand. Yeah, he says he marks out the paths of all his um, rational creatures, determines their destiny, and uses them for his purposes. Yep. And while he endows them with freedom, yet his will controls their actions. Perfect. I mean, I felt like that was kind of the mic drop. <laughs> right. It's crazy to think that Arminian, though, will just read that and just be like, no, but what about my free will? Like, you don't have free will. 
there's there's no such thing as a free will Baptist church, right? It's it's a false thought. I'm so far removed from actually thinking that way and and talking with people Praise who God. think that way that it's kind of crazy. How how did I ever really see it that way? You know? Yeah, because you were taught it that way. Yeah. And the natural bent of your sinful heart is to want to be autonomous from God and His sovereignty. It's true. All right, number three, the will of God in relation to sin, Sandra. Basically, that God did not decide to affect sin himself, nor procure its commission. He did not make sin, but instead he permitted us to sin, yep. thereby rendering the entrance of sin into the world without himself becoming the author of sin. Yeah, you sounds this- so professional, Sandra. I know. Thank you. Yeah, and he mentions that it made the entrance of sin into the world certain, because the Bible tells us that the plan to save sinners was made before the foundations of the earth were laid. So usually the first question we ask is, well, how did that happen if no one had sinned yet? So then, Sounding pretty super right now. So then did God plan the fall or did God, like he, like Berghoff says, he decreed to permit the fall and to permit sin. So he wasn't the initial or primary cause of sin. And he, if you read on, he goes on to say, um, and I, I really like this because I really felt like it put it into perspective because I've had the conversation yeah. over and over again with people talking about free will and sin and, and all these things. But I felt like Burkhoff really hit the nail on the head when he says, the fact that he decreed that sin should enter into the world does not imply that he takes delight in it. That is good. The sovereign power or omnipotence of God, the sovereignty of God also finds expression in the divine power or omnipotence. So it's the power to execute his will. And this is seen in God's ability to do whatever he wants to do and nothing can thwart his purposes. And I think the best example of this is the birth of Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. In that dozens and dozens, and I don't even know how many prophecies were fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. The city he was born in, the circumstances he was born under. The family he was born into. family he was born into. All these different things were orchestrated by God to happen in that way and were prophesied about hundreds of years before it happened. Why? Because God, in his omnipotent power to execute his will, made it happen that way. He controlled history and controlled everything that was going on so that his purposes would happen and so that he could prophesy about it and then show the fulfillment to Mm -hmm. all of us in the birth of Jesus. And there would be no thwarting that. Right. There was no, there wasn't anything you could do about it. Mm -hmm. You're not stronger than God. What's funny is Herod tried. Herod tried to kill all the newborn boys two years old and under, remember? But I feel like this is a really good point right now to just jump in and like do a shameless plug for our advent. I know, right? And all it did was cause Mary and Joseph to go down to Egypt for a little while and then come back up to Israel and fulfill more prophecy. Because in uh-huh. Hosea, Matthew points out that it says, out of Egypt, I called you. So anyway, God laughs at those who tried to thwart his plans. Yes, and Burkhoff goes into also under this that there are things that, you know, God cannot do. He cannot lie, he can't sin or change, nor deny himself. Mm-hmm. Right. And 
he goes he goes into that as he talks about God's sovereign power. Yeah, and that's why the Psalms and theologians following the Psalms will say things like, the Lord does whatever he pleases. And I know I kind of said, you know, God does whatever he wants, but again, that still follows whatever he wants. So it's always according to his character that he operates. And with that little example, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. So get your Advent out. Get your Advent out and... And Advent on and get your Christmas on. Yeah, something like that. Well, we appreciate... Thank you guys for... Going through another bit of our bite-sized Burkhoff series. Chewing on a little bite-sized Burkhoff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we hope it was beneficial, encouraging, edifying, and that you enjoyed it. Tune in next week for another episode. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time... Merry Christmas. Have a woke Christmas. Yeah. Let's start with the microphone check, one, two, first Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church The kind of things that few search, they say that the truth hurts Well this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth First things first, can't neglect this at the start I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart From original sin, the effects of the fall The sin of our first parents brought death to us all Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us And then we're all rebels and dead Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a dark state, Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames, left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames, cause we're powerless to change, if you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily, as you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3. Verse 1 is my thesis, it's the deepest Truth that should get you speechless What scripture teaches, will fill in the missing pieces Picture Jesus meeting up with Nicodemus Perhaps it was fright about the other Pharisees Wicked spite against Christ that turned this into naked night He called the rabbi and gave him props Said he was a teacher from God Jesus replied, made him stop Regarding the kingdom of God, no one's going in In fact, you can't even see it unless you're born again That must have consumed and stretched his mind Cause he said, can a man enter his mother's womb a second? Naturalistically, the only way for him to hear it Jesus said you must be born of the water and the spirit No other way to enter heaven That sounds like Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 In this new birth, the spirit is the source and the agent The water symbolizes spiritual purification Flesh can only produce flesh, that's true and factual Regenerating work of the spirit is supernatural It's kind of like the wind, which is free East to west can't receive the steps You can only see its effects In the same way the Holy Spirit chooses who he pleases to sovereignly open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. If 
it wasn't for the spirit's mysterious operation uh -huh. We would all be under serious condemnation I'd still be rejecting the sun If God hadn't said, let there be light Like Genesis 1, yeah And just like the light could not refuse to shine Irresistible grace has renewed my mind Let's exalt the king who died and truly is risen The new birth is not the effect of human decision But the cause, it changes our natural habitation The situation, it's a radical transformation I was cursed and polluted so my dirt was inexcusable with new internal pupils his person is beautiful his worth is indisputable the lamb is amazing a standing ovation for his work in the crucible so let us respond with true worship and love to the god who was given new birth from above